So um, I wonder what you do while you wait. Um, like like uh, many of us, I suspect I look at my phone, you know, check my emails or my WhatsApps. I, I do that while I wait. Maybe I browse my Twitter feed, I aggravate that crick in my neck. Um, and, and I guess that's fair enough, you know, if, if what you're waiting for is, is something sort of mundane, you know, if you want to be distracted from something like a dentist appointment or something like that. Um, but of course, um, uh, if you've got a conscience about too much screen time, you're probably tutting uh, at the thought of me on my phone while I wait. But that's okay. You're probably right. It would be much better for me to spend my time browsing back issues of Hello Magazine in the waiting room instead, wouldn't it? Much more, much more educational, much more worthwhile, uh, I'm sure. But what about if uh, what I was waiting for was not something mundane, but what about when we're waiting for royalty to visit. You're not going to be on your phone then, are you? Uh, I I remember some years ago the Countess of Wessex visiting the Isle of Wight food bank Um, and and she was a little bit later than, than we all expected but I can tell you we were not looking at our phones while we waited. In fact, the last few weeks had involved us uh, repainting some some things. Uh, There was deep cleaning going on. The grass was freshly cut. The trees outside were pruned. And and then there was us. Uh, We'd got ourselves kind of pruned as well. We got ourselves suited and booted. The hair was combed. The ties were straight. The the, the shoes were shining. Um, And and even in those last few minutes before she came, they weren't wasted on our phones. We were busy with with last-minute preparations because this was a royal visit and, and and everyone wanted to be ready for her, uh, uh, her arrival. Well, you know, the question that gets addressed in, in this passage, really, is how do we get ready for Jesus' arrival? Because he is coming. And, and it will be a day when the, the whole fabric of creation will be renewed. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. It's going to be ushered in with his arrival. So what do we need to do to get ready for that? How can we be prepared and, and you'll have noticed as we read the passage, I'm sure, that, that this is the, the final bit of Peter's letter. And it's a passage where he kind of brings together his, his overall concern in writing the whole letter with his immediate concern here in chapter 3. So his, his overall concern, as we've seen, is that his readers have a grown-up faith. He wants them to grow in the knowledge of God that, that will lead to them living Christ-like lives. That's the, the big concern of the letter. But if you were with us the last time, you'll have seen that his immediate concern uh, in in, uh, uh, verses 1 to 10 of chapter 3 is that his readers have assurance that Christ is coming back. Uh, As we've seen, uh, Peter's been warning his readers about the influence of false teachers. And and, and these false teachers have been denying Christ's return. You know, where is the promise of his coming, they say in in verse 4. And and so Peter has been concerned to to powerfully affirm that he is coming, that that his word promises it, that, that word by which he created the world and then deluged the world in the flood. That's the same word by which, through the apostles and the prophets, he promises to return. And if he hasn't returned yet, well, it's not because he isn't coming, but it's because he's patient. He, he wants more people to return, uh, to repent and, and turn to him. But coming, he is. And with him will come judgment. And uh, God has spoken it. It, it will happen. We can trust 
what God says. So now in these, uh, these concluding verses, he, he brings together the, his, his overall concern that they have a grown-up faith that leads to godly living and his immediate concern to affirm Christ's coming again. And so he says to them in verse 11, so what sort of people ought you to be? Which is kind of a, uh, a personal challenge, isn't it? And not, not just to those readers then, of course, but to us as readers now, because like them, we've been through this letter, haven't we, in some detail. And I take it that we don't put ourselves through all that simply to inform our intellect, but rather to transform our living, right? And so we need to let God's word actually change us by submitting ourselves to it. In other words, not standing over it in judgment, but sitting under it in obedience. And that's what Peter here is is seeking to stir us up to as he closes his letter. He's appealing to his readers, to to them and to us, and asking us, so what sort of people ought you to be? How will you be ready for Christ's return? Because he is coming back. And I reckon he he answers that question with several appeals in in these verses in order to uh, kind of motivate us to live in the light of, of Christ's coming. So let's have a look at them. Here's the first one in uh, verses 11 to 13, which is to let his return motivate us to live godly lives, looking forward to a new home. Have a look at verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. Do do, do you see the way that Peter kind of ties together his appeal for them to to live godly lives with the fact of Christ's return? They must live godly lives because he is coming back, do you see? Uh, In the previous verses that we we looked at the other week, he painted this, this powerful picture of the cleansing judgment of his coming. Verse 7, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Or or verse 10, they will be burned up and dissolved. And and he emphasizes this again, look in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. So he's painting a very uh, very dark, a very graphic picture here, isn't he? Actually, as I I think I mentioned the last time, I, I don't think the imagery necessarily points to the destruction of everything, but rather that that fire, that burning language is is meant to evoke um, some Old Testament passages like like Malachi three, where God's judgment is seen as a refining fire that that doesn't so much destroy as it, it rather it purifies, it cleanses, it it leaves a a final result that that's pure and and without blemish, but nevertheless it's forceful language, isn't it? And I think he uses that kind of language because he has the false teachers in mind, those, those who've been denying the truth of what God says and kind of scoffing at the idea of a, a second coming. Where is the, this second coming, they say, his coming? And, and they use their disbelief as, as kind of an excuse for, for immoral behavior, sort of living for the pleasures of this world and, and trying to lead others of God's people astray along with them. And and so Peter, I think with these teachers in mind, says, you know, so you want to deny what God says? You want to live for the pleasures of this world? 
well, this world is going to face God's refining fire. This world, and indeed the heavens as well, are going to be judged and cleansed. It's, uh, it's striking, isn't it, that, um, I don't know, at least for centuries, humanity has pondered on what will bring about the end of the world as we know it. That was a song, wasn't it? R.E.M., I think it was, that sang it back in the day. Uh, but, you know, back in the, in the Cold War era, for example, people were concerned about a, a nuclear holocaust, weren't they? A, a world war which, which, uh, by which we would sort of destroy each other completely. We, you, you might remember, those of you who are a bit older, you might remember they called it mutually assured destruction. Um, in more recent years, uh, of course, people have begun to wake up to the serious environmental problems that we face. That likewise uh, 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 could, could bring about the end of the world as we know it. Well, those, those are indeed very serious issues. And, and the environmental one, I, I'd suggest, should be one that Christians should, should be at the very forefront of, not, not dragging our heels on, because Scripture has a lot to say about humanity's stewardship of the earth, which we should want to take thoughtful action about. But friends, Peter's very clear here that it will not be us who bring about the end of the world as we know it. But rather God will do it when he intervenes in history for that very purpose. And and so he addresses his, his Christian readers and he says, so what sort of people ought you to be? Well, verse 11, you ought to be people who live holy and godly lives. He's saying, I think, something like the Apostle Paul says in, in Romans 12, verse 1, doesn't he? Uh, Present yourselves, your, your bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So, so for us to live holy and godly lives is about us living lives that conform to God's will in, in every area of them. Lives that are morally pleasing to God, lives that are set apart for God, um, where, where our whole lives are, are lived for Christ. And if we're people who are living for him, then we're people, verse 12, who wait for and hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. See, um, if somebody isn't a Christian, if, if they're not living for God, then just the mere thought of the coming of the day of the Lord, well, that should actually send a shudder of fear down their spine, shouldn't it? As, as they reflect on the, the devastation that, that Peter uh, has said will come as Christ judges the world. But for God's people, we need have no fear. In, indeed, we may eagerly look forward to his coming because, verse 13, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Did you see? God has promised to all who turn from living in rebellion against him and and don't deny the promises of his word, but instead turn to him in repentance and place their trust in him as as saviour and seek to live godly lives with him as their king. His promise to those people is to save them from the judgment that is to come and, and to give them a new home. Now, I don't know about you, but... um. It's great to feel at home, isn't it? Um, 
Esther and I, we had a lovely time away from home uh, last year on, on our sabbatical. But there's something special about coming home, isn't there? It's great to be back home, we say. Or, or, or when we've moved house, you know, for some reason. It's lovely when that new house starts to feel like home again, isn't it? And, and not like you're kind of, you know, squatting in somebody else's house, um, Or you might know that feeling islanders often talk about of kind of being on the ferry, you know, after you've had a trip away somewhere and and the ferry pulls out of Portsmouth Harbour or Southampton or wherever and and you get that feeling of coming home. And of course all of these are are just poor imitations of of the the real sense of of joy and peace and, and security that will be ours in our new home in heaven. What a great day that will be for God's people. But did you notice that verse 12 suggests we can hasten its coming? That, that, that kind of seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Because uh, other verses in the Bible, like, like Acts 1 verse 7, for example, remind us that the, the Father has set the, the times and the dates by his own authority. So in an absolute sense, of course, we don't, we don't hasten its coming. No, no, God is sovereign over those things. He controls them, not us. But, but remember that God works through people. And, and he said that he will not return until the, the full number of his, his elect have been gathered in. So there is a sense from, from our perspective in which the, the more we preach and live out the gospel as we live godly lives, the sooner we fulfill the gospel mandate which, which God says must be completed and will be completed before Christ returns. So that's that's. Paul's first appeal here, isn't it? He says, let Christ's return motivate you to live godly lives looking forward to a new home. Um, but then if you look at verse 14, you'll see there's a, kind of, there's a second appeal uh, that he wants to make to them, which is, I think, to, to let his return motivate us to purity and to peace. Have a look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And, and you might have recognized the, the language in that verse. Is it kind of it, it echoes the requirements of animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, doesn't it? That were to be uh, without spot or blemish. And, and, and Peter, in fact, in, in his first letter in 1 Peter 1.19, describes Jesus, our, our once-for-all sacrifice, as a lamb without spot or blemish. And he's called the false teachers. In, in 2 Peter here, back in chapter 2, he called them blots and blemishes. Whereas we, Christians, here in this verse, are to be without spot or blemish. So he's saying, since you're looking forward to his return, let that motivate you towards purity. So that you'll be found by him when when he returns, not like the false teacher, not like blots and blemishes, but rather spotless and blameless. And friends, it, it kind of begs the question, doesn't it? Is that how you and I want to be found when Christ returns? Now, of course, we we won't achieve it, will we? Perfection will only come in heaven. 
But, but is that, by God's grace, what we're aiming at? Or maybe have we just given up? But, but notice also in, in the verse that his, his coming should motivate us to be found at peace with him. And, and, and I wonder how many people, if we were to ask them, you know, go down Union Street and take a sample, would, would say that they felt at peace with God. Uh, my, my feeling would be that, that quite a few would say they did not feel at peace with God. Indeed, quite a lot of, I guess, nominal churchgoers in this country, I fear, actually go to church in order to get a feeling of peace about themselves and God. Others, of course, who may not be nominal churchgoers, they get involved in different spiritualities and different religions, often being drawn to them because the religious practices involved give them some feeling of peace with God. But, but Peter here is not talking about having peaceful feelings about our relationship with God, but rather about he's talking about our status before God, whether we're actually his friends or his enemies, whether we're truly reconciled to him or not, such that when he returns, will we be saved by him or judged by him? And friends, the, the, the Bible is clear that we are only at peace with God when he has justified us by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not uh, at peace with God just because we feel it. We are only at peace with God if we are trusting in what he has done for us in Christ. So do we know real peace with God? And so have the confidence about the future that comes from being his friends and not his enemies. If you are trusting Christ for the future as, as your saviour and your king, then you are at peace with him because of Jesus. And, and so Peter appeals to them, let Christ's coming motivate you to, to live godly lives, looking forward to a new home, and let it motivate you to purity and peace with God. I think there's a third appeal to them in verse 15. It's quite a brief one, um, but it's an important one nevertheless. And, and it's to, to let his return motivate us to gospel ministry. Uh, I wonder if you can see it there, look in, in verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. So he's, I think he's kind of reiterating what he said in verse 9, isn't he? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. He's patient. But here he kind of extends the point to say that God's patience means salvation. See, friends, the, uh, the greatest need of every person in our world is to have a saviour when the judgment of the world takes place. And Christ's patience in coming gives us more time to spread the gospel, more time for gospel ministry. If the Lord has not returned yet, it's because the full number of those he's called to salvation have not come in yet, which means there's gospel ministry to do. And, and Peter here is telling us this to give us a, a sense of urgency. Do you see, let's, let's use the time well. He hasn't come yet. 
which means that the way of salvation is still open to people. But that will not always be the case. So let's not waste the time. But let's use the time we have well for, for gospel ministry. And, and you know, friends, that the thing about, about gospel ministry, the thing about evangelism, it is that we, <laughs> we, we almost always seem to view it as, as someone else's work and not my work, don't we? But friends, every year that the Lord doesn't return is a sign of his patience that he gives to you and me so that we will have more time to share good news and and give people an opportunity to repent and and trust in Christ. So friends, let's, let's use the time well. There's a... Uh, there's a fourth appeal, actually. It's also in verse 15. It's, it's a bit in verse 16 as well. The, the appeal here, I think, is to let his return uh, motivate us to trust the Scriptures. So he's been kind of building a point here, hasn't he? Live in the light of Christ's return. From verse 11 onwards, that's kind of the, the point that's been building. And he says, now look, end of verse 15. Just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. In other words, the the Apostle Paul, who, who speaks with the wisdom God gave him, he's also saying the same things in his letters as well. In other words, live in the light of Christ's return. It's not just Peter's message, it's it's Paul's message too. And we could look at loads of examples of that, couldn't we? From Romans and 1 Corinthians and 1 and 2 Thessalonians as well. Um, And Peter does famously admit, look, at the end of verse 16, that some things in Paul's letters are hard to understand, which comes as a great relief to me, um, that that even the Apostle Peter struggles with them. But, But notice Peter's point here at the end of verse 16 is that because they can be hard to understand... Ignorant and unstable people twist them or, or distort them. So, so there's, an, there's an implied appeal to us there, isn't there? And it's an appeal, I guess, to, to wrestle with the scriptures that are hard to understand. Do you see? Um, if a passage of scripture is, is more difficult to unravel, you know, we, we might well get tempted to just not bother uh, you know, not bother trying to get to grips with it ourselves, just, just rely on somebody else's explanation of it perhaps. But what Peter implies here is actually that that can be dangerous. Because the hard passages are the ones most open to being uh, distorted by the ignorant and the unstable. And I guess he's got the false teachers in mind again, hasn't he? In other words, friends, we've got to work hard at the scriptures. Sometimes they're not easy to understand you know God's mind is is way above ours and his scriptures contain deep truth you know they they contain strong meat for the mature as well as milk for the infants but we won't get that strong meat unless we engage deeply with the scriptures and friends we can see the importance here can't we of of not ignoring what God says to us because we don't want to put the work in to understand what he's saying. Not all of God's word is straightforward to grasp. But if we really are to grow in godliness, 
Well, we need all of it, don't we? But friends, we can trust it. This is Paul's Paul's big point here, I think. It's the ignorant and unstable. It's the false teachers who distort Paul's teaching. Uh, end of verse 16, just as they do the other scriptures. And you can notice the, the implication there, can't you? They distort Paul's teaching just like they distort the other scriptures. Do you, do you see what he's saying? He, he's saying what, what Paul writes is scripture. Um, do, do you remember back in, in chapter 1 and chapter 2 how, how Peter said that the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, the, the writers of scripture, were men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, he's saying it again here, isn't he? Only specifically this time about the Apostle Paul. He's saying that we can trust the Scriptures, and what Paul writes is Scripture, so we can trust that too. And friends, this is why we can trust the Scriptures, because men spoke from God as they were carried along by his Holy Spirit. In other words, this is God's book. Um, I love that quote from uh, John Wesley. It's in his introduction to his book of sermons. Uh, he he kind of sees himself there as a, a, as a person with but a, a short life, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. And, and so he says, um, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. He hath written it down in a book Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. And and friends, as as we live in the light of Christ's return, we need to be people of the book. Because... End of verse 16. Destruction awaits those who would twist and distort what God says and teach falsely of, of his great and his precious promises. Well, here's our, here's our final bit of motivation for us uh, uh, this morning to, to live in the light of Christ's return. And look, it's here in verses 17 and, and 18. Let his return motivate us to be on our guard and grow. Have, have a look at verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So so he said in in verse 16 that uh, the the deliberate distortion of God's word leads to uh, to destruction. So, verse 17, knowing this, we must take care that we are not carried away by the error of lawless people. Do you you see? In other words, the presence of false teaching is a reality, and so we mustn't think that we too cannot be swept away with it. So what is the answer? How do we avoid being swept away by it? Uh, Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. In other words, we, we avoid the snare of false teaching by growing. Now, of course, all this talk about growing gives me an opportunity to talk about what an expert gardener I am. 
Okay, the, the truth is I'm, I'm nothing like an expert gardener, but even I know that if there's something in your garden that's kind of vaguely leafy and green and shrub-like or tree-like or something, um, it ought to be growing, didn't it? If it's not growing, it's probably dying. Uh, it may not always show a lot of uh, uh, growth on top, uh, of course. Uh, sometimes it's, it's seeking its roots, sinking its roots down, down deep, isn't it, to get better nourishment and, and, and bear more fruit. But we would expect to see some kind of growth, wouldn't we? Because growth is a sign of life. So could I ask us this morning whether we are growing as Christians? Are you growing as a Christian? Because it is the same with spiritual things, isn't it? Spiritual growth is a sign of spiritual life. Yes, of course, we have our, we have our ups and downs, don't we? But the long-term trend should be growth, shouldn't it? Because we need the maturity that comes with growth. You know, uh, when, when trees are mature, they're stronger, they're, they're more stable because their roots are deeper. They're less easily swayed and damaged by the wind. And it's the same with mature Christians. They're more stable, verse 17. Because their roots are sunk more deeply into the word of God. They're less easily swayed by every kind of you know, wacky doctrine and bit of false teaching that comes floating along on the breeze. Friends, we need the maturity that comes from growth in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So how much of that do we know? How much of that have we experienced in our lives? You know, many of us here, we, we've experienced his grace in salvation. But are we growing in it? Are, are we knowing more of his grace, more of his kindness, more of his love? Are, are we growing in our understanding of it, in our experience of it? Peter's final appeal here is grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Huh. And do you remember how he started the letter? Do you remember that far back in, in, in chapter 1, verse 2? May grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So friends, let me ask us, what steps are we taking to grow? Now, for, for some of us, as I've, I've talked with a, a few who, who have said that the lockdowns they've had this past year have actually allowed them extended time in God's word that was just crowded out before. And, and so actually there has been some spiritual growth taking place uh, during this year for, for some of us. But, you, you know, I'm aware, too, with, with many uh, conversations that the, the absence of proper uh, physical church gatherings, the deficiencies of meeting on Zoom or, or YouTube have, have meant that, that although we physically survived the pandemic, our growth in Christ has taken a big hit. Can I ask you, if, if you're honest... How's that been for you? Has your physical safety this year come at the cost of your spiritual growth? And, and what steps could you take now in order to grow? Uh, you know, um, us here trying to uh, encourage people physically to get to church now, uh, if you can. Our, our plans for an open morning on the, on the 10th of May, then two morning services each week from the, uh, from the 17th. 
uh, on a way day at the end of, of June, that they're all our, our little attempts to regather the church after this pandemic. Because growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus is a communal activity. We need each other to grow. We can't do it by ourselves. We need together to prayerfully submit to his word and, and let him transform us through it as we obey it and, and spur each other on to obey it too so that it might lead us to godly living. And so friends, as we close this, this letter of 2 Peter, let's remember that Christ is coming back. So let his return motivate us to godly living, looking forward to a new home and and motivate us to purity and peace with him and and motivate us to gospel ministry, using and not wasting his patience in coming back. Let his return motivate us to trust in his word, to be on our guard and, friends, to grow in the grace and knowledge of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Verse 18, that the glory would go to God both now and on the day of eternity. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you so much that you are coming again. And what a glorious day that will be. But as we, as we wait for that day, would you please let this passage motivate us to live life now in the light of that certain coming. For your glory's sake we pray. Amen.